Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed Podcast. I'm going to write to Dave Barton. I know of nobody better to tell you why is the 4th of July, Independence Day, really all that important. So Dave, let me throw it to you with this. What happened before the 4th of July, back in that wonderful year, 7076, what happened on that day? And then how should we look back upon it now? David Barton, welcome to the World Prayer Network. Talk to us. Hey, thanks, Jim. Good to be with you. Um, you know, l- looking at the stuff, I think the best way to answer that is as historically as I can. Uh, we happen to be sitting in a vault right now, standing in, in a vault, and we've got about 160,000 original documents. Thinking you might talk about 4th of July. I pulled out a bunch of, of documents from the founding fathers themselves. By the way, I'm going to be standing in front of a flag periodically, that flag back there is actually D-Day. That landed on Omaha Beach uh, on D-Day uh, with a lot of lives cost there. That was one of the worst of the five beaches. And that flag was actually on a ship that was called a tank carrier. So whereas most of the Higgin boats came and the front doors went down and 36 soldiers ran off onto the beach, that one was carrying four tanks because if they could get tanks on the beach, it would save thousands of lives. Uh, if they could knock out the German artillery and the machine guns that were mowing them down, the tanks had, had cover. Well, the German artillery sunk the ship that was carrying the four tanks. And so as it went down there off off the beach, the flag was still above water. And one of the soldiers swam out to the boat, grabbed the flag, brought it in. And and so that survived the the German onslaught that was going at Omaha. So you'll see that behind as I move around. And if you're wondering what that is, that's what it is. But those are the things that we're surrounded with here. So Jim, on the 4th of July, Tomorrow being the 4th, this is what we consider the National Holiday of Independence Day. Actually, that's not quite accurate. Independence Day was July the 2nd. On Independence Day, and let me back up. There's a guy right here, Richard Henry Lee. I'm going to point to him. It's going to be hard for you guys to see. But And, and by the way, these, these guys here, there's 56 signers of the Declaration. Um, as an indication of, of how little we know of our own history today, I'll take this picture and often put it up in front of large groups and, and say, tell me by name, who are the signers of the Declaration? And we nearly never get more than three out of the 56. Sometimes five is, is really kind of exceptional. But with an entire group, they'll come up with maybe three. And it usually tends to be uh, particularly uh, Je- John, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin, which is interesting because when you talk about Franklin and Jefferson, you pick two of the least religious founding fathers. And so it's amazing people know the least religious and they won't have a clue about Benjamin Harrison or Richard Henry Lee or George Clinton or Sam Adams or Charles Carroll or Robert Morris or Benjamin Rush, Robert Treat Payne, Elbridge Jerry, um, Stephen Hopkins, William Williams. I, I just keep going through and it's all names we haven't heard of. So backing up to what happened was back in, in the first week of June, this man right here, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia made a motion in Congress that says, let's separate from Great Britain. People kind of knew it was coming. The British had been shooting at us since 1770, June of 1770, killing Americans for years. And we had not separated. We tried every means we could, peaceful reconciliation, the Olive Branch Petition, trying to reconcile. And so finally got to the point where it it, it, it isn't going to work. We're going to have to separate. And at that point, Richard Henry Lee made the motion. And when the motion was made, they tabled the motion. They didn't act on it. They tabled it. They knew it was coming. And so what they did was they tabled it and said, okay, you five guys right here, we're making you a committee. You go see what the language would, should be on how we're going to separate from Great Britain. So we're not going to vote on separation until we get some language to work with. And so these are the five guys that drafted the Declaration of Independence. So you've got John Adams and you've got Roger Sherman and Robert Livingston and Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. That's the committee that was sent out to to draft the Declaration of Independence. So they work on that. They work on it throughout June. Um, They come back about June the 28th. And on June the 28th, they come back to Congress, say, okay, we got a draft we can work with. Congress at that time says, okay, now let's go back and take Richard Richard Henry Lee's resolution. And that resolution said these states are and of right ought to be independent states. We're not going to be part of the British anymore. We're going to be independent states. So they brought that motion back on the floor the 28th of June and said, now let's debate that. And so from the 28th of June till the 2nd of July, 
They debated, should we become independent states? And Congress voted and said, yes, we should. So on the 2nd of July, <clears throat> excuse me, on the 2nd of July, Congress declared our independence from Great Britain. Independence Day is the 2nd of July. Now, now that we've declared independence, they say, what should the wording be on how we announce this to the world? And so they went and picked up the declaration that they'd had before. And on July the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, they debate the declaration, they edit it, they modify it. And on the 4th of July, they say, here's the language we're gonna use. And that's the Declaration of Independence. So the 4th of July encompasses both Independence Day and Announcement Day, public announcement that we've now separated. So it's interesting that they consider July the 2nd to be Independence Day and July the 4th to be Declaration Day. We've all rolled it into one now as Americans. We say 4th of July is Independence Day. When that happened, when this happened on the 2nd of July, we declared independence. It's interesting, John Adams wrote his wife, Abigail, and Abigail and John had a terrifically loving relationship, just phenomenal folks, uh, both very, very pious, very active Christians. And Abigail was not always with John. He was for years at the time, uh, three years over in England and, and France negotiating, trying to help us win the revolution. So. There's a long period of time they didn't see each other off and on. And so that, there's 1,100 letters back and forth between John and Abigail. And, and I mean, if they were, if it was the day, they'd be texting on the phone all the time. And they're just talking back and forth letters all the time. And so on the day that we voted to separate from Great Britain, he wrote her two letters that day. First one is, we've done it. We've separated. We're now an independent nation. And then later that day, it's, you know, I've, I've been thinking about what we did. And he was really more somber in that letter. And he said, I, I really think this day, and he said Independence Day, I really think Independence Day should be celebrated with solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. So his viewpoint was, we need to celebrate Independence Day, and it needs to be a religious holiday. Now, he said, we need to have parades, we need to have fireworks, we need to have cannons, we need to have all the fun stuff, but this is a solemn day of deliverance to God Almighty, celebrate it that way. And so it's interesting that even 62 years later, his son, John Quincy Adams, who became president also, John Quincy Adams gave uh, an oration 62 years later, and it was actually at that point, 1839, he gave a 4th of July oration. He said, we've been 62 years under the declaration. He said, why is it that the 4th of July and Christmas are our top two holidays in America. Now think about that. In 1839, America's top two holidays were Christmas and the 4th of July. And President John Quincy Adams says, why do we celebrate those two days? And he said, because on the 4th, of, he, he said, because on Christmas, Jesus brought all the principles of Christianity into the world through his birth. Everything we believe as Christians, it came into the world through Jesus at Christmas. He said, 4th of July is when America took the Christian principles that Jesus brought into the world, and we made it the basis of our government. So he saw the 4th of July as one of our top two religious holidays, which that's not the way most people are going to celebrate the 4th of July tomorrow. But that's the way we've seen it was, this means this is a nation birthed on the principles that Jesus brought into the world through his birth. John Adams, who is one of the guys who have drafted, who have do so much, he said, this, this should be celebrated as a day of solemn deliverance, as a day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. So right off the bat, Jim, just looking at, at the 4th of July, it ought to be a religious holiday. It ought to be a time when we stop and say, thank you, God, that we have a nation that took your principles and built a nation on those Christian principles that Jesus brought in the world through his birth. And that's not me saying that. That's the guy saying it who actually did it. And that's the other thing. We don't know much about these guys. And that means we also don't know much about their faith. Um, and some of the stuff I've got stacked up in front of me here deals with their faith. And even though we're somewhat from a distance, let me kind of tell you some names and call out some things. So what happened with Congress when we separated in 1776, we're now officially at war with Great Britain, who had been the mother country. What that means is we no longer have access to all the same things we did. As British citizens, we had British ships coming all the time to America and, and bringing supplies, and we get them from Europe. Now all those ports have been blockaded. The British don't want us to get any supplies whatsoever because we're now at war. 
So they set, set British harbors outside Charleston, down South Carolina, because that's where all the supplies come in for the southern United States, around Boston, around Philadelphia. They put all these, these naval ships there to keep anything from coming in. And so what happens is by 1777, we're having serious shortages of lots of stuff in America. One of the things we had a shortage of was Bibles. And so Congress actually addressed that in 1777, said, man, we, we can't get Bibles in. We, our, our schools need Bible. Our churches need Bible. Our communities need Bibles. And so Congress at that time said, all right, let's, let's import 20,000 Bibles from Holland or Scotland. Somebody that's not at war with us, let's go get 20,000 Bibles and get them into America. Well, they weren't able to get those Bibles in. So it's much later when we finally get the Bibles in. What's significant is back when the Pilgrims and Puritans came over, they brought with them this Bible. This is what's called a Geneva Bible. Geneva Bible, this one is from 1590, belonged to the Arthur Upton family, one of the Puritan families who came to America. And on the inside of it, it's, it's, this is the first Bible printed in the English language. goes back to 1560. Inside, it has a lot of commentaries along the way. And the commentaries criticize all the non-biblical practices in Europe, the way they ran their courts, the way they had a state-established religion, the way you didn't have rights of conscience. They, they criticized the way the king ran things. It was really critical. And so the king passed a law that said, okay, if you live in an English-speaking colony, you can't print any Bible in the English language without my permission. So we had to import our Bibles from England. They had to be approved by the king, which meant they took all the criticism out of the commentaries. There's no commentaries in the Bible. You don't criticize the king. But when we won the revolution in, in 1781, won the war for independence at Yorktown, we're not under that law anymore. And so for the first time, we can get Bibles. And what we did was we actually, in 1781, started printing the first Bible ever printed in America. The first Bible printed in America is this Bible right here. This is the original. It's one of the rarest books in the world. Uh, when they printed this originally back in 1782 is when it came off the press. We hadn't signed a peace treaty yet. We won the war, but Great Britain hadn't signed a peace treaty. When it came off the press, they printed 10,000 of these. Today, there's maybe 25 or 30 left total out of 10,000. And most of them are in institutions like Smithsonian and whatnot. Uh, there's only eight or nine in private hands, and we actually have three of those eight or nine, and, and this is a really rare book. But what makes this book significant is this Bible, it has a congressional endorsement in the front of the Bible. And this Bible is endorsed by the Congress of the United States for the people of the United States, because this is the first Bible we could print here in America. It's never been legal before. First English Bible printed here in America, and it's printed by the printer of Congress, and in the records, it says that this Bible is, quote, a neat edition of the Holy Scriptures for the use of our schools, end quote. So the first Bible printed in English in America is printed by the printer of Congress with the approval of Congress for the use of our schools. And anybody who says, oh, our founding fathers are a bunch of atheists, agnostics, and deists, and they didn't want the Bible in schools, really, what, what do you do with this? And so we're talking th this body of guys, this, this is toward the end of the revolution. So that kind of shows their overall faith. Another thing that I would show with these guys, uh, this is a proclamation here. I'll try to point this down where you really don't see much glare. I think that's working. This is a prayer proclamation from 1778 passed by the Congress. This is one of 15 times that the Congress called Americans to pray. Uh, sometimes at seven, eight of those 15 were to pray and fast. And today it's humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And seven of the 15 are calling for times of Thanksgiving. And quite frankly, what they would do is they say, guys, we're getting our tail whipped. We need God bad. They have humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And God would intervene. And then they'd say, did you see what God did? Did you see all those miracles? Let's have a day of Thanksgiving. And so 15 times in the revolution, it goes back and forth with fasting and prayer, Thanksgiving, fasting and prayer. And this is one done in 1778. This is issued by the Congress. By, by the Congress, and it's done by the same printer that printed the Bible. So this is the printer of Congress, and this is the kind of stuff they're turning out. And again, this doesn't seem to go well with the narrative today that they're all a bunch of atheists, agnostics, and deists. So when you go through them individually, if you take this first Bible that was done, if I were to open this up, it's too far for you to see, but let me guarantee you, these are tiny, tiny, tiny letters in this Bible. 
This is the entire Bible, and you can see this is not a big Bible. And so this is a hard Bible to read because it's so tiny, but because it was expensive to print Bibles, this meant you had less paper, and so you could sell the Bible cheaper. It was expensive to print Bibles back then. So that's the first Bible printed in, in American English. Contrast that with this Bible right here. Now, this Bible is a good bit bigger than this Bible, as you can see, which makes this Bible much easier to read. This Bible is called America's First Family Bible. This is a Bible that literally you could open and you could get the family around the Bible and you can all gather around and study and read the Bible together. And it's, it's, it's a great Bible. It's done by this man right here, signer of the Declaration, John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon is the Reverend Dr. John Witherspoon. He is one of the many ministers that was among the founding fathers. And he's the guy who did the first family Bible. He's also president of, of Princeton University, a theological school. And he trained about one third of the founding fathers. So you got so many founding fathers who were trained by this, this preacher, but that's the Bible he's responsible for. So this Bible is the first Bible done in the, in, for families. Then I can take you over while we're here. Let's go right here to this guy. Uh, this guy right here is Charles Thompson, tall guy there. Charles Thompson is responsible for this Bible right here. This is the first translation of the Greek Septuagint in the English. He took the Greek Septuagint, took him over 20 years. He made an American scholarly translation. And this is considered probably the most scholarly American translation of the Bible ever done. And it's done by Charles Thompson right there in, in the picture with Congress. And so four volumes. And by the way, he also had an eight volume set of the Bible. Now, you know, we're used to carrying a Bible with us on a phone or something. Imagine going to church with an eight-volume set of Bible. I mean, that, that's pretty amazing. And the reason he did it was he took the four-volume set and he put a blank page between every one. And that became America's first study Bible. So as you're reading the scriptures, you got a blank page right beside it. You can make all the notes on whatever the Holy Spirit's showing you. Just write it down there. And so it was really cool. You had an eight-page Bible, which was a study Bible, so you could keep notes as you're studying the Scriptures. While we're over on this side as well, I'll point to this guy right here. This guy is John Dickinson. John Dickinson goes on to sign the Constitution. He becomes a general in the American Revolution. Uh, he is the governor of Pennsylvania. He's the governor of Delaware. And what I have here is this is his personal Bible that he carried to church with him. It's got his name on the inside, and he was a very devout, pious guy. And this is the Bible he took with him to church, and he signed it right there. It's got his name and date under it. And so this is, this is his personal Bible that he uses in, in, in reading and studying the Bible. Uh, looking at other things, while I'm here, you got John Hancock here, President of Congress. You got Thomas Jefferson here. You've got this guy here named James Wilson. And James Wilson is one of only six guys who signed the Declaration and the Constitution. He's the second most active member in writing the Constitution, the Constitutional Convention. When George Washington became president, he took James Wilson and put him on the U.S. Supreme Court as an original justice. He had been trained in theology back in Scotland. So he, he was from Scotland, trained in theology. Just mentioning those three guys, and I could show you five others up here, Samuel Chase and others. Let me pick up this Bible right here. This Bible right here is the largest Bible done in America. This is called a hot press Bible. It's a technological breakthrough because they actually heated the ink before they put it on the papers, which made this Bible last a really long time. The pages are in great shape. The ink's in great shape. Everything looks good. And it was designed to be a long-lasting Bible. But those eight signers of the Declaration, along with 13 signers of the Constitution, are the guys who helped fund that Bible. So that's the biggest Bible done in America. It's, it's a remarkable Bible called the Hot Press Bible, 1798, it came out. But again, Jefferson helps fund that, and John Hancock helps fund that. James Wilson helps fund that, others. So again, the, the, the notion we get that we're a secular nation, a bunch of atheist agnostics, theists, that doesn't seem to hold up. And then as you keep coming across this direction, you've got people like this man right here. His name is Benjamin Rush. Uh, Benjamin Rush is John Adams said of all the 250 founding fathers, he said Benjamin Rush is one of the three most notable. He said you got George Washington, Ben Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush started the Sunday school movement in America. So 
for you guys that may attend Sunday school or lead Sunday school, you probably didn't know it was started by an American founding father. And then on top of that, he started the first Bible society in America. And as a result, this is a Bible that he did. This Bible from Benjamin Rush is the first mass-produced Bible in America. They found a way to print Bibles quickly and cheaply. And so this one is designed so you can buy them and give them out to your friends because every American needs a Bible, needs to read it. So this is the first Bible done by any Bible society. This is the first Bible society in America. This is the Bible they did to pass out to folks. And that's from a signer of the Declaration of Benjamin Rush. Uh, also, pull this up here. This man right here, his name is Francis Hopkinson. He's a church music director. He's a choir leader. He's on the church staff. In addition to that, he's a very active founding father. He was one of the, the guys who helped run the finances for the American Revolution. He also designed the Great Seal of the United States. So the Great Seal, as you know it, that's designed by him. Uh, he did the artwork on it. He also did the artwork for the Seal of the U.S. Treasury Department, which is where he helped organize that department. So he's a famous founding father. He, as a musician, did this book. Now, this is re re really remarkable. You probably can't see it from that distance. Maybe you can. I can see a little bit at that distance. But this book is the first hymn book in America, done strictly in America. It's the first book in America to have any musical notation in it. So if you can see the music inside this book, it's a hymn book. Now, where did the songs come from in this hymn book? He took them out of the Bible. He took the 150 psalms and set the 150 psalms to music. So this is a hymn book he did where he took the entire book of Psalms and set it to music so that we could sing the Psalms like David sung the Psalms. And everybody knows what Psalm 119 is, right? The, the longest Psalm in the Bible. What do you think it's like to sing Psalms 119 in church? Jim, you were a pastor for a long time. Uh, how long would it take you to sing Psalm 119 in church? And then what do you do if the, if the music director says, let's sing it again? Uh, no, no, sit down. Let, that Psalm in this book was 32 pages long. Just that one psalm, Psalm 119. So let's sing this Sunday morning in church, 32 pages. Let's sing it again. That was such a good song. Uh, imagine that. So this, and this is why their church services often last two hours, by the way. So that comes from a signer of the declaration. He was also a federal judge, by the way. George Washington pointed him as one of our very first federal judges. And in addition, we also have his personal Bible that he took to church with him. Uh, it's a little two-volume set that he carried with him. You can put it in your pocket. It's signed by him up front. It's got uh, the year 1769 under it. So this is Francis Hopkinson's personal Bible. We've got so many things like that. The problem we have today when we celebrate the 4th of July, we think the founding fathers, we don't even know them as individuals anymore. And, and knowing them as individuals is really significant. You find out their faith. You find uh, While I'm at it, let me just show you a few more things. Um, you can read this from that distance. You see this? It says John Hancock up top. Pretty easy to see up top, John Hancock. This is a call to prayer that he did. It's a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. This is one of 22 times that he called the state of Massachusetts to pray. Now, may I point out, that's pretty amazing to think of Massachusetts having a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And then let me show you... What and John Hancock is this guy right here. So anybody's not sure that's he's the guy sitting in the chair. He's the president of Congress. And so here he is calling Massachusetts to, to prayer. And so what does he have us praying and fasting for? And here he is. He says, pray and fast that with true contrition of heart, we may confess our sins, resolve to forsake them and implore the divine forgiveness through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our savior. And on he goes. That's really some pretty heavy-duty theological stuff. Oh, it's actually light theological stuff, but it's pretty serious theological stuff. I mean, that's basic Orthodox Christianity. But this is one of 22 times John Hancock called his state to prayer. Uh, and the same way, this one is a day of national prayer and fasting from John Adams. He's president of the United States. This is a presidential proclamation from John Adams. Same kind of tone, same kind of stuff. We've got to humble ourselves and pray as a nation. We've got to repent before God. So that's John Adams calling the nation to prayer. Right here, this one says Oliver Wolcott up top. You can see Oliver Wolcott there at the top. Oliver Wolcott, 
He is the governor of New Hampshire, and he's calling into prayer. And this is Oliver Wolcott right here. This guy right there is Oliver Wolcott. That's this guy, Christian guy. He's a governor. He's calling his state to a time of prayer and fasting uh, in the same way. This is Samuel Huntington. Uh, Samuel Huntington is the governor, uh, and this is the governor of Connecticut. And he, too, is calling his, his state to a time of prayer and fasting. This is Samuel Huntington right here below Oliver Wolcott. So Samuel Huntington right here. Uh, if I take another one, I'll pick this one up. This one says Josiah Bartlett on it. Josiah Bartlett is over here. This is Josiah Bartlett right here, and he's calling his state at the same time of prayer. Imagine what would happen if our governors today got together and started doing this kind of stuff. This is common. Bad. Do you know that by the time we get to 1815, there had been 1,400 government-issued calls to prayer by 1815. Uh, think of that. Every, every year, every month, every whatever, whenever something was up, they called the, the state to prayer. So that's kind of an introduction to who these guys are. We celebrate what they did. We just don't know them very much. And, and we don't know today their views on race. We don't know the sacrifices they paid. We don't know what they did for us. We just kind of celebrate them. And now we're told uh, it's a bunch of atheist agnostics. Deists. They were all racist. They were all slave owners. They were all biggest. Wrong stuff. That's why we keep the originals around to be able to establish what truth is. Truth is really important. Second Thessalonians 2 says that if you believe a lie, Scripture says you, if you believe a lie, if you reject the truth, it says God will send a strong delusion and you'll believe a lie and you'll be damned as a result. So if you believe a lie, you enter into a delusion. And when you do, you have judgment that comes because you'll do something wrong because you believe the lie. And that's where we've been with the nation. We've we told so many lies about who these guys are and what they do and what they stand for. Uh, they started the global abolition movement. There's no nation in the world that went further in abolishing slavery in a lifetime than these guys did. Um, I'll, I'll just point out as a good example. Do you know when the first black person was elected to office in America? And the answer is 1641. 1641? Really? Yeah, Matthias Susan, a black man elected in Maryland. Now, I can show you also in New Hampshire, uh, electing Wentworth Cheswell, or a, who was great founding father there. Or if you go up to uh, Pennsylvania, Thomas Hercules. I go through all these black officials. like, but, but think about it. 1641, America elects a black official, first black official. When did Great Britain elect its first black official? 1987. When did Russia elect its first black official? 2010. And America's the bad guy? And we're more than two and a half centuries ahead of the rest of the world? Really? See, we don't know our own history. And so we believe a lie, a delusion enters, and we're damned as a result. And this is why truth is so important. I'm sorry, Jim, getting off on several things, but... But that's kind of the, the long version of an answer to your question about what tomorrow is all about. This is remarkable. Uh, you have said there were 56 signers. Mm -hmm. But I think in terms, when you use the term founding fathers, that's signers of the Declaration of Independence, signers of the Constitution, and some others, right? Yeah. When, when you talk about founding fathers, you're talking about people who were really influential and really played key roles in establishing America as an independent nation. So when you talk about that, you, you include the 56 signers of the Declaration. There's 55 who wrote the Constitution. Those are founding fathers. There's 90 who gave us the Bill of Rights, which is the other part of the Constitution. So at that point, with some overlap, you know, six, six guys signed the Declaration of the Constitution, you're looking probably in the vicinity of 190, 200 founding fathers at that point with those three key documents. But then you got guys who didn't sign any document, but they were key in our independence, like Patrick Henry. He was a governor of Virginia. He didn't sign the Declaration of the Constitution or do the Bill of Rights, but Patrick Henry was really key. And you have guys like John Jay, the original chief justice, who did the Federalist Papers. Now, he didn't sign a document, but he's key to getting the Constitution ratified and then you've got generals like Reverend John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg, two-star generals, same two-star general as George Washington, except Washington's commander-in-chief. So you look at some really key generals that really played an important part. So when you throw in some key governors and some key generals and, and like the, the first cabinet, first Supreme Court, you probably come up with 225 to 250 guys we would call founding fathers. And so out of that, people can name two or three signers of the Declaration, two or three signers of the Constitution, 
maybe one general. I mean, we, we really know about one-fifth of one percent of these guys and who they are, and that's only this generation. If I take you back to textbooks, even in the 1920s, uh, kids studied all, all the signers' declaration, all the signers' constitution. It was real common. So we've really kind of developed a national amnesia. Uh, but, Jim, that, that's who a founding father would be considered. And, and it's not going to include Thomas Paine. You know, he was a real anti-religious guy. Thomas Paine wrote a great pamphlet, but he wasn't even in America when the Constitution was done. He spent his time in France. Uh, he was a pamphleteer who did some good pamphlets, but he's not a founding father. He wasn't crucial to the establishment of our documents or our, our independence. Uh, so uh, you, did you say in 19... 19- 20 school 1920s there, there's for example a book out in 1903 uh, that's called the, the pioneer mothers of america and this is a school book and in it one of the volumes is nothing but the wives the wives of the signers of the declaration and so just as we knew every signer of the declaration we knew the wife of john hancock we knew abigail adams and what she did uh, for example francis lewis francis and, and let me back up to, to preface that the declaration, these guys, when they signed it, they signed their name at the bottom. They pledged to give their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor to establish America's independent nation. So what you've got is a bunch of shopkeepers and farmers and school teachers going up against the greatest military in the world, and they have no military at all. So they have the only military we've ever had has been Great Britain. Now we've separated from that. And so we're supposed to take on a bunch of professional military. I mean, th- that's like taking your Sunday school class and taking on the, the, the Navy SEALs. It's just not going to end good for you. And that's literally what happened here. And so these guys pledged life, fortune, sacred honor. And significantly, of all 56 of these guys, we do not have a single, in- not one single instance of any of them backing up on that pledge. Nine of these guys never saw they didn't live long enough to see the independence that we wanted. Uh, a good example is this guy right here. This is Richard Stockton. Richard Stockton was from New Jersey. He is the Speaker of the House in New Jersey at the time he's here. And so he signs the Declaration of Separates from Great Britain. New Jersey all around him was filled with what were called loyalists. They were Americans who loved Great Britain, who did not want to separate. And one night while he's in bed, they come in and they capture him in bed. They take him to the British and said, here's one of those treason guys who's trying to destroy the country. Take him. And so they take him and throw him in in a a prison ship called Prison Ship Jersey. It's actually called the Hell Hole Jersey. That's where they sent you to die. Uh, The British shot 4,335 Americans with bullets, but 11,400 died in prisoner of war camps. So you're three times more likely to die in a prisoner of war camp than you are on, on the battlefield. And they put him in a prisoner of war camp, started beating him and abusing him and mistreating him. And so he's in bad shape, getting in worse shape. And Congress doesn't know he's there. He's a member of Congress. Congress doesn't know he's there. One of his neighbors contacts Congress and said, did you know one of your guys is over here? No, we didn't know that. What's happening? Well, they're abusing him. And so Congress told George Washington, you go capture a British general. And you start abusing that British general the same way that they're abusing Richard. And when they stop abusing Richard, we'll stop abusing their British general. That lasted two days. And they said, okay, our bad. You can have Richard back. Well, when he came out, he was broken and he was dying. And he has six young children who are about to be fatherless, and he knows it. And so when he gets home, he writes his last will and testament. But it's not like we do today, give everything to the kids. His last will and testament was kids. I love you. I'm your father. I'm about to die. And you're going to be without a father in this world. So let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the Bible. Let me tell you about the doctrines of the Bible. Let me tell you what Jesus did to save us. And he goes through and lays out the doctrines of the Christian faith, knowing that his kids will read that. And he says he hopes his kids read that well many times after he's gone, because he goes through how important it is to live a moral life. And it's important, not just in the future world, you need to be moral right now. Today. And he just, it's really strong. So there's a lot of guys that sacrifice life, fortune, sacred honor. However, you have Francis Lewis, who's a signer from New York. And the British came to get him at his home. And when the British came to get him at his home, he wasn't home, but his wife, Elizabeth, was. And so when they come to the home, they, they decide they're just going to blow up his home because they're going to destroy everything he has. Elizabeth gets out on the front porch in her dress and just crosses her arms and just stands there and says, no, you're not going to take my house. They said, move away or you'll die. 
I'm not moving. And so the British opened, the officers ordered the cannons to open fire on the house. And she stands there with cannons going off all around her. One of the cannonballs went right between her legs, right through the dress between her legs. She merely looked down at it and looked back up. Wouldn't even move, just, just firm fix. And so then the, the British decide they're going to take her. And so they go capture. And one of the British guys looks down and sees her shoes. And, and there, there's a buckle on the shoes that were brass buckles on top of her shoes. And they thought it was gold. So they ripped the brass buckles off the shoes, taking the gold. So they haul her off to prison. And she becomes a prisoner of war. And they start abusing and mistreating her just like they did the other Americans. And when they finally find out about it, and America raises a ruckus over it, she gets out. But she died shortly after she got out as well. So you have the wives who are just as dedicated as the guys were. And that's why we had textbooks in the early 1900s on the wives as well. And that's a textbook I mentioned that was published in 1903 that was used for years after that. It's called The Pioneer Mothers of America. And I think it's volume three that deal, volume two or volume three, that is the story of all the signers of the Declaration's wives. So we not only knew the 56, we knew their wives and we studied that in school, which is something we don't do today. David Barton, you have a massive amount of information on your website. Talk to us about that website and how they can follow up on stories. Like I, I'm, I'm quite intrigued. Some of these stories I'm hearing for the first time. I, I was a student at one point at Princeton Theological Seminary. I graduated there. When I arrived at Princeton, I started recognizing all these, these last names. Some of them I had not heard, a few of them I had. But as you've just gone through the story, I mean, Witherspoon, Stockton, uh, I, you start recognizing all these stories from right around from the community of Princeton, New Jersey. And, uh, and there was a price that was paid even greater than what I write. And I would drive, my wife and I would drive from our home, Princeton Windsor Apartments to the university. She was a student at Westminster Choir College in, in Princeton at the time. And we would drive through an area. They said, oh, there's a famous battlefield here. It was the battlefield of, of Princeton. And we were just a few miles from, I mean, we see the sign Washington Crossing, a couple miles that way. We would go right through that every day. And I didn't at the time realize the price that was paid for me to enjoy the freedom that I have. Yeah. So thank you for reminding me. You know, Jim, I, just a story on Witherspoon real quickly. Uh, John Witherspoon was just so, so remarkable. He, he was a Presbyterian guy and, and being from Scotland and having been there, he would be probably what we'd call a fighting Presbyterian. You know, the Presbyterians were some of the best soldiers in the, in the American War for Independence. And he, he was, bless his heart, I mean, he was so good in so many areas. I mentioned he trained about a third of the founding fathers. Um, he's the guy most responsible for the economic policies that appear in the Constitution. So not only did he sign the Declaration, he's the guy who got, you know, look at America today, most prosperous nation in the world. And Witherspoon's the guy responsible for the economic policies. Well, as a patriot, his sons went to war and he lost one of his sons and one of his two sons was killed in the war. And that was one of the prices he paid. And when the British came there to, to Princeton looking for him and others, he wasn't there, but they went into his theological library. And this is a dude who loved theology, and he had collected quite an extensive library, the greatest writings, you know, going back hundreds of years, and the British burned his library. And when the British burned his theological library, Francis Hopkinson said, um, he's ready to go to war. There's going to be some British and real trouble. I mean, it just set him off that they would destroy the theology, not just the, the signers, but even the theological beliefs. And so Witherspoon is, is such a fun story to read and it's not what we think of when we think of most ministers today. I mean, th th these are the guys that picked up the guns and led their church out to defend these rights in a very real sense. You, you had to get them over the edge to do it because they didn't, they, they taught their congregations, God will not respond. He will not bless an offensive war. But if you get attacked, the Bible gives you the right of self-defense. And if they start something, you can sure get engaged, but you cannot start anything. So it really took a lot to push these guys over the edge. But when they did, they knew they had biblical justification to be able to defend themselves, defend their homes, their property, all the stuff. Exodus 22, twice in, in, in the book of Nehemiah over with what Jesus says in Luke. You can, defend, you can defend yourself. You just can't start anything. And Witherspoon is a great example of that, that once they had crossed that line, this is a guy that got wholly involved and had a huge impact 
I, I don't think America is anywhere close to the same without, he's the guy who personally trained James Madison. You know, James Madison, we call him the father of the Constitution. He was a seminary student under John Witherspoon, personally trained by Witherspoon. Think about how different we would be if it was a different group of guys. So, Jim, with you being back at Princeton, I mean, Witherspoon, hands down, is one of the most significant founding fathers just for his lasting impact in America. And he does not get near the credit he should today. We kind of put him over there and say, oh, he was a preacher. He, he was the head of the theological school. Yeah, and I'm glad he was because we wouldn't be the same nation without him. You have done an analysis of the language in the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution and where each one of the phrases come from or are drawn from constructs in the Bible, correct? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, when you look at, and, and let's put the Declaration in, in context. The Declaration is what they did in 1776 to tell the world, here's what we believe and here's why we're doing it. So it starts off with 161 words that set forth six principles of government. Here's six things that government's supposed to do. And they got that out of a theological writing that the two treatises of government, John Locke, a lay theologian, had written that, and he used more than 1,500 biblical references to show how government's supposed to operate, proper operation government. So Richard Henry Lee over here, he said, quote, we, he said, we copied the Declaration of Independence from Locke's two treatises government. So that theological piece, that's where they get so much of the belief. So it starts out, here's the six principles of government. God's made it really clear. Here's what government's supposed to do. And then they followed it with 27 grievances saying, here's how Great Britain has violated these six principles. And then at the bottom, they say, now, we give our lives, fortune, sacred honor, firm reliance, divine providence, and they sign it, and, and that's the declaration. So 11 years later, when we get the Constitution done, they took those six principles, because that's the basis of government, and that became the basis of the Constitution. Now that they've done those, those, those principles, all right, here's how the Constitution is going to take these principles and make sure that our government protects these principles. And the 27 grievances that were there, that's a lot of the clauses in the Constitution where they said, hey, we're, we're not going to let this happen. We talked about this. Great Britain did it. We're not going to let it happen here in America. And, and so when you look at all that, the Constitution we have today, um, Cornell University Law School did a study, and they said, you know, America certainly has a unique Constitution. So when you look at the 5,800 years of recorded history, when you look at the thousands of nations that have been out there, there's so many nations that have had constitutions. They said, what's the average length of the Constitution in the history of the world? And Cornell University Law School determined that historically the average length of a Constitution in the history of the world is 17 years. Last September the 17th, which is Constitution Day in America, we celebrated 234 years. So imagine the average Constitution going 17 years. Ours has gone 234, still going strong. Lots of attacks on it, still going strong. So this has led university professors, university uh, at the University of Houston, Henneman, Lutz, other guys said, you know, the Constitution, ours has turned out really different from every other Constitution. So the founding fathers who wrote it, where did they get their ideas? And so they said, we think if we can look at the writings of the founding era, take the representative writings and see who they quoted in those writings, we'll know where they got their ideas. And so they, they took 15,000 representative writings out of the founding era. They went through them and they found 3,154 direct quotes in those writings. They said, now we've got to find out where these quotes came from. And they took it back. It took them 10 years. At the end of 10 years, they had documented those 3,154 quotes. They could show you where they came from. The number one most cited individual in the founders' writings in, in that era, number one most cited individual is Charles Montesquieu. He's a Christian uh, philosopher in France. He wrote 1750, The Spirit of Laws. Number two, and he had 8.3% of all the citations. Number two most cited individual was William Blackstone, a judge who wrote commentaries on the laws. Four volumes said he had 7.9% uh, of, uh, of the quotations. And then the third most cited source was John Locke. I mentioned he's the guy that they got the declaration from. He was 2.9%. But here's what was shocking. The number one most cited source, not individual, number one most cited source was the Bible. 34% of all quotes in the founding writings related to that came out of the Bible. That's four times more than Montesquieu, four times more than Locke, four times more than Blackstone, 12 times more than Locke. The number one cited source for the ideas on which we built the Constitution was the Bible. 
And so now I can take you specifically, and I, if I take you over to Deuteronomy and show you the language on capital punishment in Deuteronomy, and if I take you into the Constitution and show you the language on capital punishment in the Constitution, you go, oh my gosh, that is the same thing. Yes, it is. Now, they didn't put the Bible verses in the Constitution, but if I take the requirements for president uh, that you find in the Constitution, if I take you over Deuteronomy 17, 15, which gives the requirement for your national leader, the head of the nation, the Moses, it's the same language. Uh, I can show you where that John Adams and James Madison and George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, all pointed to Jeremiah 17, 9 for why they did separation of powers and checks and balances. I mean, this is the stuff the founders wrote about. So when you look at the Constitution, the problem we have today is most Americans are kind of biblically illiterate. Um, there's a great, great letter from, from Ben Franklin that he wrote to Dr. Samuel Cooper, a minister in Boston. And Ben Franklin said, you know, he said, when I'm in America, he said, whenever I quote scriptures, I don't have to tell anybody what scripture I'm quoting because everybody knows the Bible in America. He said, but when I go to England and France, he said, if I quote the scriptures, I have to tell them what Bible verse it is because they don't have a clue what Bible verse it is. So most Americans today can read the Constitution because they don't know the Bible. They don't see Bible verses in the Constitution. They're all over it. And, and that's a problem with our biblical literacy today. Uh, but I, I literally can't show you a Bible verse in the Bible and show you language in the Constitution. You go, that is the same language. Yes, it is. So that's, that's a long answer to your question, Jim. But the, the declaration is important because, and by the way, one other thing I'll point out is those who want to change the value system always attack the Declaration of Independence. Um, Jim, as a Wesleyan yourself, and, and what Wesleyans did back in the beginning with, with abolition and women's rights, everything else, it, it's interesting that when you look, uh, the Declaration says all men are created equal, they're endowed by the Creator with the same set of rights. And so that was what was used throughout the abolition movement. As you get into the pro-slavery guys in the 1830s, 1840s in Congress, they said, quit quoting the Declaration to us. We took an oath to uphold the Constitution, not the Declaration. The Constitution doesn't say anything about liberty. It's the Declaration that does. And so every time they want to change the value system, they say the Declaration is a bad document. And then we got into Roe v. Wade. Before Roe v. Wade, um, we kept saying, hey, the, the founding documents guarantee a right to life. You can't do abortions. And in the 70s, the congressman said, quit quoting the Declaration to us. It's a declaration that says right to life. That's not in the Constitution. And then when we got into Oberfeld in 2015, but in the years leading up that, we said, hey, marriage, look, the laws of nature and nature's God say marriage is between a man and woman. And they said, quit quoting the Declaration to us. That has, we, we take an oath to uphold the Constitution. So you'll find that people... The, the Declaration sets up the value system. The Constitution shows you how it operates on those values. If you take the values away, you can make the Constitution do anything you want to. And it's significant. The Founding Fathers themselves tied the two together. The Constitution, Article 7, dates itself to the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence is the birth document, and the Constitution dates itself to that. And it says, we're taking the value system here. We're building on it. And so when states when territories became states in the United States, you know, whatever territory it might be, Wisconsin, whoever, the requirement was you cannot be a state in the United States. The Enabling Act is, is what they gave to let you become a state. The Enabling Act says you can't be a state in the United States unless you follow the values of the Declaration and the stipulations of the Constitution. Those two documents go together. So tomorrow's birthday, that is the value system of America and it's secular people who try to separate us from that declaration and say, oh, no, we just do the constitution. You know, Biden is saying we've got this constitutional right to abortion. Mm, you can find a constitutional right to anything if you separate it from the values on which it was built. And that's why the declaration is so very important. And just, you know, rekindle tomorrow uh, the love for what they, they talked about in the declaration. They acknowledged God multiple times. And it's that value system. And apart from that value system, and that's, you know, we're talking about this because you mentioned Witherspoon. Witherspoon was a key part of establishing that value system. And that's what's made America special. And Jim, that's where the Bible verses, you talked about that, you know, so many Bible verses showed up in the Constitution. They did because those who wrote the Constitution also were guys behind the Declaration and they understood that biblical worldview. They knew, knew how to apply it. We got to get more Christians today who understand how to apply a biblical worldview. And you're certainly doing your part to help us have those kinds of Christians 
David Bartney, you are a national treasure. I praise God for you and the influence you're having and through your family as well. Uh, it's stunning. Folks, if you've never been to his museum or his website, by the way, David, I want to have you come back at some point and, and let's talk specifically kind of phrase by phrase, the scripture, the scripture founding, uh, backgrounding to the Constitution or to the Declaration of Independence. I'd love to do that. Uh, yeah. I, I've been in conversation with people. The way I say it is this way. The most quoted book by our founding fathers was the Bible. And the second most quoted thing was them quoting other people who quoted the Bible. That's right. <laughs> Which is really stunning when you think about that. <laughs> so yeah. I'd love to have you come back and let's talk specific on that. And I'd love to have you come back sometime and talk about the biblical foundation of self-defense. Yeah. The scriptural foundation of self-defense. That is not understood by most That's right. people. How do we go to your website, uh, your books, your writings? Uh, tell and, and people want more information on everything you've just talked about right now. Tell about your website and how to maneuver around that website because it's massive. It's got enormous information, wonderful information. Tell them how to find what you've been talking about. Yeah, the website is wallbuilders.com. And obviously that's from Nehemiah, rebuilding the things that have been torn down. So wallbuilders.com. Uh, there is a store on there that has dozens of books related to the kind of things we're talking about now. The most recent one we did is called The American Story. It goes into the biblical foundation of the documents, the biblical thinking of the country. Uh, so many of those founding fathers, just stuff we don't get today. Uh, there's a lot of DVDs there. We actually have a YouTube channel where we go through a lot of the documents and show and let you see what, what those guys themselves said. We introduce you to founding fathers maybe you've never heard before. So we've got a, a lot of video stuff, a lot of YouTube channel type stuff as well. Social media, we got all the regular social media stuff, Snapchat or Twitter, whatever you want. It, it, we're going to be out there on social media as well. Um, then I would also point you to the American Journey Experience. We're linked to that. But that's where we do so much of the training. If you got young people that, that are from 18 to 25, we're about to start another session July the 18th. And we let them see all these documents and we train them and all the stuff in those documents and all the stuff we're talking about. Uh, every single year we've done this, we've had, we've had students go back and convert their professors. And it's not because they challenge them. We teach them the Jewish method of how to ask questions. Catechism method oftentimes this is what Jewish folks today still study. It's terrific. It's what the founding fathers used. So that, that method is really good. Um, and there's just a lot of stuff they navigate there. Jim, we also have up a lot of the original documents or copies of originals. We've got 260 original sermons up from that founding era. So as you get into document section or you get into the store section or the article section, uh, there's searches there on the website that'll get you pretty much into anything you want to talk about. We cover a whole lot of stuff there. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.